Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone. My gosh, time is running away with me. Pumpkin season is over and I'm swapping my autumn whiskies and rums for my Christmas whiskies and rums. Today, we will be heading down to South America with Darwin. This episode is unusually late for a few reasons. Firstly, I'm dealing with some serious private family issues that had to take priority. Secondly, Elena had one of her regular sporting injuries, meaning a long trip to A&E. She's fine, but my hair is definitely getting greyer. Thirdly, it turns out that there is a vast amount of research needed to write a 6,000 word script on Darwin's time in South America. This is roughly the length of a series of undergraduate essays or even a dissertation for some universities, so I have clearly gleefully blitten off far more than I can chew and I regret nothing. I am sorry that this kind of series takes so long to put together, but Darwin is a huge figure. We all love deep dives and science is amazing, so I feel it is worth tilting at those windmills. I trust you will all keep listening if I keep podcasting, but I do know it is straining listener patience and especially the patients, the patrons, who are well overdue an episode or three. I've had a lovely listener review, on Podchaser at least, from Alan Harwood, five star, quote, it's a top-notch history podcast. If you're interested at all in the 19th century and appreciate careful research, it's a must listen. There are dozens and dozens of topics to dip into. Just choose one that interests you and listen away, end quote. Thank you, Alan. I have to say, that I sometimes worry about the size of the back catalogue for new listeners. That's why I sort episodes with thematic categories on the website. So if you only want to hear about railways or Queen Victoria, you can go to the website and find them grouped that way. In the longer term, I'm hoping to get a full batch of transcripts up to complement them and lots more. I can't tell you how much I envy those podcasts with production teams. Now, when we left him, Darwin was a young man out at sea, quite literally. He was aboard the HMS Beagle on course for Brazil. I do need to warn you, I'm going to be doing some key highlights and interesting finds and events rather than everything. The whole voyage took years and so many discoveries and specimens that even today, Museums are still studying them. If we listed every specimen and place that Darwin went, we would never, ever finish the show. So, if I don't mention one of your favourite discoveries, or places he stopped, or anecdotes, I'm really sorry. But, please email me, and I'll read it out on the next couple of shows, so that listeners know you wanted it mentioned. Also, the Natural History Museum in London is working on digitising a lot of the fossils. So check out their website. The Natural History Museum is a must-see for any Darwin fan, as well as being one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. 
The collection of mammal fossils Darwin found in South America alone is over 100 specimens held in the museum. It includes the treasured Toxodon plantensis, key fossil of Darwin's. I'll cover it later. I mention it now because it is an example of the big problem of fossil hunting in the Victorian era. Say you were Darwin, you look at a pile of rocks and skulls in a local market in South America. All the traders swear they have something interesting. You see a skull that doesn't match any animal you've come across, but it seems to be an incomplete fossil skull. What is it? Where did it come from? How was it dug up? Is there any more of it? When did it die? Darwin was pretty sure the one he was looking at was from a creature about the size of an elephant. He bought it for one shilling sixpence. He couldn't just go to a museum and start comparing it to other creatures in a database. This was the beginning of the great ages of archaeology, geology and paleontology. Darwin was one of perhaps a few hundred people in the entire world who were professionalising the fields. The skull turned out to be of huge importance and by sheer luck it happened to be a match for some unidentified teeth he'd found earlier. Think how unlikely it is for an animal to become fossilised in the first place. Then how unlikely it is for the fossil to survive and be discovered. Then to be sold to someone actually stood a chance to find out what it was. That skull could have been buried in a backyard, smashed by kids throwing rocks, used as target practice, or just chucked in the trash heap. How many fossils have been lost, or never even dug up from the ground? It's a problem that plagues prehistory, and even ancient or classical history. How many papyrus rolls from ancient Egypt were just lost in the market? or burnt, clear some space. History fans bewail the loss of the Great Library of Alexander, but everyday life scrubs history clean far more often. Oh, and let's not forget the dirty little secret that museums hate to admit. A lot of things given to museums get lost, or forgotten, or misfiled, or are just never studied because the museum no longer has an expert on that area. The Natural History Museum has recently had to admit it didn't know how many actual fossils from Darwin's collection it had and which it could confirm as definitively his. A great deal of work went into a detailed catalogue and assignment of specimens. In fairness, museums get mountains of objects and over the centuries, the bookkeeping gets a bit wibbly-wobbly. We are lucky that Darwin wrote a very detailed book of the voyage of the HMS Beagle, which he published in 1839. It is far more than just a scientific journal. It is a first-rate travel journal as well. His eye for detail and curiosity made him a really good travel writer. This was no small thing in early Victorian England. Few people travelled internationally, so well-written accounts like Darwin's were a window into another world for most people. It was a world with far fewer people. The vast megacities of South America 
belong in the future. The total population of Brazil was only 5.47 million people in 1832 when Darwin arrived, compared to the 221 million people today. There were vast areas of natural wilderness that even the native peoples hadn't explored. From the point of view of a naturalist, it was a fascinating country with plenty of forests to explore, but from a personal point of view, Darwin hated the ruling Portuguese people, who he found rude, crude, selfish and brutal to their slaves. The Beagle had arrived in Rio de Janeiro on the 4th of April 1832. Modern familiar landmarks were absent. There was no easy cable car to the top of Sugarloaf Mountain, no statue of Christ the Redeemer on Mount Corcovado. The city was small and still had its original hills, swamps and marshes. It also had another familiar sight for Darwin, a royal naval vessel, allowing the men on the Beagle to join and celebrate with their countrymen. Even here, the long arm of the Royal Navy could reach. The king's health was drunk, classical music enjoyed, and letters from home opened. One of the letters was from Fanny Owen in England. Darwin had hoped to marry her, but she had written to let him know she had married someone else. Darwin took his mind off this setback by examining the geology of Sugarloaf Mountain and correctly identifying the various elements of composition, which would later be evidence in part for plate tectonics. He was excited to set out exploring, despite minor frustrations, as he said in his journal, quote, The day has been frittered away in obtaining the passports for my expedition into the interior. It is never very pleasant to submit to the insolence of men in office, but to the Brazilians, who are as contemptible in their minds as their persons are miserable, it is nearly intolerable. But the prospect of wild forests, tenanted by beautiful birds, monkeys and sloths, and lakes by cavies and alligators, will make any naturalist lick even the dust, even from the foot of a Brazilian. End quote. This is a really key point. Darwin couldn't stay on the Beagle. He had to plan and complete expeditions into the interior landscapes he visited, far from help and with little practical intelligence on conditions or where to go. It is at times like this you realise Darwin was not just a bookworm or a gentle old buffer with a beard. He was a young explorer doing field work as part of a Royal Navy expedition. He would often need his wits, his tools, maps and his guns. As Captain Kirk might have said, risk is our business. Whilst he was ashore, HMS Beagle would often be moving round coasts and rivers doing survey work. His first trek included some delightful time in the tropical rainforest where he collected huge numbers of specimens. He felt that the tropical rainforests were perhaps the most beautiful and exciting things he would ever see in his life. He then swung back, took a walk along a deserted beach in a storm at sunset, before riding back towards Rio through sugarcane plantations. He found the houses pretty and often decorated with flowers, 
plus a lot of churches. He recorded his annoyance at getting overturned in his canoe and having his precious equipment damaged. The next day, he peevishly wrote, quote, employed all day in restoring the effects of yesterday's disaster, end quote. He had mixed feelings about Brazil overall, saying just before departure, quote, Upon the whole, I am tolerably contented with what I have done at Rio in natural history. Several important branches have been cut off. Geology here is uninteresting. Botany and ornithology too well known. And the sea totally unproductive, excepting in one place in Botofogo Bay. So that I have been reduced to the lower classes, which inhabit the dry land or fresh water. The number of species of spiders which I have taken is something enormous. End quote. It had been a good spot for his first real field work, but not very groundbreaking scientifically. His particular problem with Brazil was his loathing of slavery. On the 3rd of July, 1832, whilst in Rio, Darwin wrote, quote, The Brazilians, as far as I am able to judge, possess but a small share of those qualities which give dignity to mankind, ignorant, cowardly, and indolent in the extreme, hospitable and good-natured, as long as it gives them no trouble, temperate, revengeful, but not quarrelsome, contented with themselves and their customs. They answer all remarks by asking, why cannot we do as our grandfathers before us did? End quote. It was quite clear that the presence of slaves and the slave trade made him view the entire country in a negative light. He went on to comment on the rich female slave owners, quote, All that I have said about the countenances of the priests may be transferred to the voices of the older women. Being surrounded by slaves, they become habituated to the harsh tones of command and the sneer reproach. Their manners are seldom softened by terms of endearment. They are born women, but die more like fiends. End quote. At one point, he was trying to talk to a slave who didn't speak English, so he resorted to hand gestures. The poor slave assumed that a white person waving their hands at him was going to give him a beating, so he covered his face and crouched down. Darwin was upset and appalled at what was clearly a traumatised person. Brazil, under the Portuguese, had the regrettable distinction of being the destination for more black African transatlantic slaves than any other country in the world. Darwin's view was that the slaves in general were healthier, better looking and more suited to the Brazilian climate than the Portuguese. He was convinced that as the number of freed slaves grew and the white ruling class tried to resist racial equality, then the free black population would take over, which he clearly felt would be a good thing. He commented approvingly that the Great Reform Bill had passed in England, which we covered all the way back in episode 23 in 2019. My God, where does the time go? Despite his recurring seasickness, Darwin was excited by their progress down the coast. His observations continued, even if he found the landscape of Patagonia less outwardly vibrant than Brazil, he noted 
quote, I caught some of the aeronaut spiders, which must have come at least 60 miles. How inexplicable is the cause which induces these small insects, as it now appears in both hemispheres, to undertake their aerial excursions, end quote. It was a mystery how the tiny spiders flew to the ship at sea. Yes, spiders were a big favourite of Darwin's, since they were small, easy to catch, and he probably didn't know how astonishingly poisonous some of them were. How the spiders flew to the ship was a mystery at the time, with two competing theories around air currents and electric fields. Darwin knew of the debate, but it was not solved until Erica Morley and Daniel Roberts at Bristol University cracked it in 2018 by showing that the spiders could electrostatically charge their webs and use them to fly on the Earth's magnetic currents and air currents. The natural world is a place of wonder, but it really rewards active observation combined with questioning. Instead of just saying a whale is majestic, look closely and ask why this whale is different. What is it doing? Why? And how did it get here? From Brazil to Argentina, which would be one of the most productive areas for Darwin in many ways. Much of his work focused on geology, which if you remember from last episode, was intimately linked with biological and evolutionary theory. Before Darwin reached Argentina, there had been little serious study of fossils. The Spanish conquerors recorded skulls from a lost race of giants. A few specimens had filtered back to Europe, but nothing serious in the South Americas. Argentina in the 19th century was a boom country. Buenos Aires was an up-and-coming city. Darwin was impressed. As he said, quote, spent the day in shopping and in gaining information relative to the geology of the country. I trust that when the Beagle returns for the winter to the Rio Plata, I shall be able to make some long excursions in this unpicturesque but curious country. Buenos Aires is an excellent place for making purchases. There are many shops kept by Englishmen and full of English goods. Indeed, the whole town has more of a European look than any I've seen in South America. One is called back to the true locality, both by the guauchos riding through the streets with their gay-coloured ponchos and by the dress of the Spanish ladies. This latter, although not differing much from an English one, is most elegant and simple. In the hair, which is beautifully arranged, they wear an enormous comb. From this, a large silk shawl folds round the upper part of the body. Their walk is most graceful, and although most often disappointed, one never saw one of their charming backs without crying out, how beautiful she must be, end quote. He wrote to his sister to let her know how much better looking the Spanish women were than the English ones. I'm sure she was delighted to hear it. Of course, Buenos Aires had its own issues, including the rumbling background of various revolutions that were really ongoing civil wars between the recently independent provinces. A wandering foreigner with a notebook, telescope and Royal Naval personnel escort sometimes screamed less travelling scientists 
and more potential British secret agent. Apart from admiring Spanish ladies, Darwin spent a lot of time in Argentina and Uruguay. I'm not going to go in strict date order, as Darwin and HMS Beagle went backwards and forwards between various places, revisiting cities and towns repeatedly on occasions. In Uruguay, he bought the skull of what was to be identified as Toxodon plententis, which we talked about earlier. Darwin's specimens were often shipped back to his mentor, Reverend Henslow, who kindly sent them onwards to the brilliant Richard Owens. Today, Owens is best known for coining the word dinosaur and is frequently assigned the role of bad guy in history documentaries. He was certainly brilliant, difficult, sometimes controversial, peevish, known to praise people in public, then write anonymous reviews as hatchet jobs to stab them in the back. He was willing to steal credit for things and spent time trying to persuade people Darwin was wrong about evolution because the theory was too simple. Many of his fellow scientists loathed him. But, and it is a very big but, no one could analyse fossils and make sense of the complex art of taxonomy like him. At its most basic, taxonomy is just naming, describing and putting organisms into classes. In reality though, it is staggeringly complicated. Think of it this way. If you had to organise a DVD collection, where does the film The Godfather go? Gangster? Classics? Alphabetical? With all the good Al Pacino films before he got too shouty? What about Moana? Disney? Musicals? Kids? Animation? When it comes to organisms, especially extinct ones, it is even harder. More crucially than this is the fact that the classifications can change radically over time as we learn more about organisms. Modern taxonomy studies heavily involve genetics, analysis of ancient faecal matter, improved geology, paleodentistry, radiocarbon dating, Bayesian analysis, and much more. Creatures get shifted about, yet the more and more we discover, and the more and more accurate our assigning of places becomes, more evidence we get substantiating evolution. Many of the terms used in the various taxonomies in the 19th century have changed radically today. Don't get too fixated on whether Darwin or Owen or Cuvier or other 19th century giants named an animal and assigned it to a particular class. What is more important is what the evidence was that they found and how the features they identified related to living and extinct organisms. Owens worked hard on many of Darwin's specimens. In the end, he identified it as a toxodon, meaning bow-toothed, and it was named Platensis after the place of discovery, La Plata in Argentina. What was it that Owens studied it carefully and noted, quote, a gigantic extinct mammiferous animal, referable to the order Pachydermata, but with affinities to the Rodentia, Edentata and Herbivorous Cetacea. In Owen's use of Cuvier's terms, that means similar to elephants, hippos and rhinos, 
but with hints of rodent, South American, toothless mammals, and the manatees, dugongs, and sea cows. According to the Natural History Museum, quote, Toxodon plentensis was a large-bodied, hoofed mammal. It is estimated that it weighed more than a ton, and it was probably similar in size to the American bison or the African black rhino. It is known from the late Pleistocene, oldest known specimens, about 50,000 years old, and probably went extinct in the early Holocene, which began 11,700 years ago. It overlapped in time with humans in South America, end quote. The museum also says, quote, Toxodonts share a number of dental, auditory, and tarsal specializations. They had short hippopotamus-like heads with broad jaws, filmed with bow-shaped teeth and incisors, a massive skeleton with short, stout legs with three functional toes. The estimated weight is over a ton, quote. That makes it a kind of megafauna, which means large animal types in an area. Those of you who are aware of some debates about megafauna in America might have pricked up your ears and muttered Clovis extinction, especially if you are a Radio 4 listener. There is a long-standing and bitter debate about the role humans might have played in the extinction of certain megafauna and other species in the Americas. There are multiple views on the debate and there is a rough feeling that Clovis peoples who migrated into North America probably caused some extinctions, whilst there is less evidence for it in South America. Still, if Toxodon lived for around 39,000 years, then went extinct when humans arrived, it doesn't for us. Self-restraint and respecting nature are not amongst our notable traits. The arrival of fishtail arrowheads in North America seems to coincide with mass extinctions. And it is really strange that when they start to spread to South America, similar extinctions happen by coincidence. This theory is more accurately called the Pleistocene Overkill Hypothesis. It basically states humans kill large animals in such numbers that they can be driven to extinction, and that this caused the extinction of the megafauna in ancient South America. On the other hand, there is very little evidence of spearheads or arrowheads of relevant age in the relevant sites in South America, and nature can be exceptionally lethal to species for a huge variety of reasons. The overkill theory also relies on populations of large fauna acting as if they were trapped and isolated. In addition, it claims a level of interaction that isn't well evidenced, doesn't explain why some species survived and others were hunted to extinction, and ignores climate change as a key driver of both evolutionary change and extinctions. Recent revisions in a study carbon dating of ancient sloth remains seems point more towards climate change than the Clovis extinction. I cannot tell you how heated this debate gets sometimes. It is complex, vicious, and to an outsider, even more like a religious schism than a genuine debate. Quite apart from the difficulties with the evidence for various 
theories in social media, there is a feeling that Clovis extinction theory is a way to blame the native peoples for all America's later problems and lack of development compared to many other European cultures. A lack of horses and other pack animals was a result of the extinction of ancestor species, preventing many key social developments, and the implication is that the indigenous Americans were somehow more backward than the incoming Europeans, and therefore deserved what they got. I'm not getting into the debate, although I'm always more inclined to the humans like to kill and eat things today and worry about the consequences tomorrow school of thought. But this is a case where there is significant debate amongst serious experts with volumes of information. It isn't important to us in a way except that it impacts on Darwinism because Darwinism is very interested in extinctions. Causes of them are really crucial to the theory. If the great megafauna of South America went extinct climate changes, lack of adaptability to new conditions, or being less suited than invasive species, that is really important to know. If they just died out because someone said, hey Bert, is that thing good to eat? I don't know, stick a spear in it and find out, then we don't get to learn how a species would have met its eventual fate or whether it would have branched off to other changes because it went onto the barbecue. It robs us of vital study and the chance to know if a species was an evolutionary success story. Also, it is rather depressing to know that humans are wiping out vast chunks of the life of the planet. Darwin reflected on the extinctions in South America, quote, it is impossible to reflect without deepest astonishment on the changed state of this continent. Formerly, it must have swarmed with great monsters, like the southern parts of Africa. But now we find only the tapir, guanaco, armadillo, cupabara, mere pygmies compared to antecedent races. Since their loss, no very great physical changes can have taken place in the nature of the country. What then has exterminated so many living creatures? We are so profoundly ignorant concerning the physiological relations on which the life and even health, as shown by epidemics, of any existing species depends that we argue with still less safety about either the life or the death of any extinct kind. End quote. You can immediately see why things like the Clovis debate become important. The question, why does Africa still have megafauna that South America does not, is an important scientific question. Even horses, absent from South America until the Spanish conquests, except that Darwin found fossils he identified as belonging to a horse-like ancestor. He wrote, quote, Certainly it is a marvellous event in the history of animals that a native kind should have disappeared to be succeeded in after ages by the countless herds introduced with the Spanish colonist. The Toxodon skull was important for other reasons. Notice its shared characteristics with elephants, hippos and others. It seemed a blending. Darwin's mind whirled, quote, how wonderfully 
of the different orders, at the present time so well separated, blended together in the different points of the structure of Toxodon, end quote. For a man living in an age where the fundamental belief was that God made each species unique, adapted specifically to a particular environment by an all-knowing creator, and unchanging, thoughts like this were paradigm-shifting. Darwin was finding thousands of species that had no basis in the Bible and were unknown to Europe. If God created all species uniquely, it was remarkably strange. He seemed to change his mind about designs and blend them so much, then wipe them out. Why was there a species that was extinct yet seemed to have commonalities with existing species? Why did many of the species seem to get smaller and have descendants that survived? How did they get smaller over time? He wondered at their behaviours and reasons for extinctions. He was giving birth to the science of paleobiology. Toxodon platensis wasn't the only megafauna. There was another giant that Darwin found, Megatherium americanum, part of the sloth family. Today, we know sloths as the cute little climbing snooze champions with the cutest little boopy noses. I'm a sloth fan. Although, they are less friendly close up. In fact, today, there are six species of sloth, or three-toed sloth species in the Bradypodidae family, and two species of two-toed sloths in the Megalichonidae family. Yes, I know, I probably got those pronunciations wrong. They are small and tree-dwelling. Yet, as Darwin discovered with the Megatherium American, sloths used to be giants. It turns out that the modern small sloth is not very typical for sloths as a species. 90% of sloth types have gone extinct. It is only the small tree dwellers that have survived. But throughout its evolutionary history, the tendency was for the sloth to be a giant. The study of evolution of sloths is really, really fascinating and is a dynamic field undergoing constant revision. It uses cutting-edge technology and still allows for new discoveries with large implications. As a recent article from the University of Chicago said, quote, the possibilities of an emerging field, paleoproteonomics, extracting information from proteins inside fossilized bone. Instead of DNA, which is a fragile molecule that needs specific conditions to survive inside fossils, scientists have been looking at proteins instead. Protein molecules are sturdier, and since DNA is translated directly into proteins, they hold much of the same information. So the scientists extracted collagen from multiple fossils, analysed it to reconstruct the sequences of amino acids, and then compared these to one another to piece together the relationships between the species. What came out was just remarkable. It blew our minds. It's so different from anything that's ever been suggested, Slater said. Previously, scientists thought 
that the une, the three-toed sloth, with the cute black lines around its eyes, was an outlier species that diverged early in the group's evolution. But based on the new evidence, it actually appears to be nested within a large group of different ground sloths that include those gigantic elephant-sized sloths. Meanwhile, the eye, or two-toed sloth, has been classified in with a family called Megalonychidae, which includes everything from Central America and Caribbean sloths to an Ice Age era American ground sloth that was first described by Thomas Jefferson. Due to the fossil's large claws, he thought it was a lion. But according to the findings, two toad sloths were actually the last survivors of a branch previously thought to be extinct, which likely split off about 20 million years ago. The protein evidence also revealed that those extinct Caribbean sloths were the descendants of an earlier branch that split from other sloths around 30 million years ago. This is interesting evidence for another long-standing question, whether there was a short-lived land bridge connecting South America and what would become the West Indies many millions of years ago. Quote. Hopefully, you are beginning to realise what a vast, interconnected field science is. Evolutionary theory didn't begin and end with Darwin. He didn't come up with the ultimate perfectly correct answer, which people just blindly accepted ever since. He gave us the core framework for the mechanism by which evolution could work, and he provided mountains of evidence. There is still so much to learn. Evidence for evolution is truly vast, and new discoveries keep adding to it. Besides these big fossil discoveries, Darwin was finding other crucial evidence. Tiny in comparison to our megasloth, but the thousands of fossil seashells Darwin examined would be essential in his formation of the theory of South America experiencing continental uplift. The Beagle crew were often taking elevation readings on the various plains, giving Darwin a sort of field team. Darwin asked himself how fossil mussel, limpet and spindle shells were hundreds of feet above sea level near St. Joseph's Bay. Findings at similar heights in different sites told him that similar causes were at work. Either the sea had ridden in a catastrophic flood, which wouldn't explain the long period of the deposits of the shells, or the terracing of rocks over time would have to indicate worldwide sea level rises, or more plausibly, sea levels had either fallen or the land had risen. He also noticed that the shells were deposited far inland in places too. Darwin was extremely thorough. He would cover over 1,200 miles of coastline in careful observation of seashells, heights and distances inland. Imagine the immense dedication and hard work to do that on foot with a pencil and paper. Visits to higher nearby islands provided even more evidence. Darwin was meticulous in proving the shells were from sea species and hadn't been moved by people or lo- like local fishermen and dumped. He recognised 
that what he was seeing was often a form of marine terracing across the landscape with rises due to the action of the sea and erosion. Basically, as land rises, the sea starts to retreat. It starts to wear away the rocks and lay down deposits to create a beach. The sea carves a terrace at the base of the rocks above the beach, then retreats as the land rises again. The old beach and terrace above it are left high and dry, forming a distinctive step. What used to be the beach and shallow seafloor have become land. Darwin thought delays in their formation were due to pauses in the continental uplifting, but the missing piece would be the discovery of ice ages, which explain why the terraces stopped and started over time. The ice ages would cause changes to sea levels, which changed the sea action in various coastlines, whilst not stopping the whole process of continental uplift. The uplift of South America continued, and many of those ancient seabeds and beaches were visible inland and hundreds of feet up, supported with evidence from fossil shells. All in all, Darwin had had an immensely productive time in South America. He still had a lot of adventuring to do, including rounding the Cape in terrifying seas, exploring in the Pacific, and visiting some pretty famous islands, all of which hopefully we will get to on our next episode about Darwin. But we will pick up with him again in the grim, dark days of January 2023. Luckily, we have the bright lights and hot chocolates of Christmas to come. That means the Christmas special is coming and the holidays are upon us. Take care and bye for now. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.